Good afternoon, good evening, and good night, as David Frost used to say. It's 10 p.m. UK time, which is an unusual time for us to uh, record what comes next live. Um, and that makes it, uh, how's my math doing at this time of day? Uh, two o'clock in the afternoon in Vancouver, Canada, where Jonas Altman is sitting outside in the, um, it's always sunny in Vancouver, or so they tell everybody who, who has not visited there enough to realize that often it's not. Um, thanks to the wonders of the ever-expanding networks in the world, um, Jonas and I connected a little while ago, and uh, I offered, asked him to come on the show and just to talk about whatever he wants to talk around, around leadership, around work. And t- First of all, so Jonas, welcome, and tell us a little bit about yourself and what's on your mind. Thank you, Tom. Um, well, I was listening to one of your podcasts, and uh, I feel like one topic which we can get to maybe later is uh, the emotional revolution in the workplace. Okay. People, um, to, to our earlier conversation, uh, being unedited and, and having to uh, maybe allow for more room for, for people to, to get to know parts of themselves outside of the professional identity setting. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting to me. But actually what's really interesting to me is breaking patterns and getting out of old habits, whether it's management, leadership, whether it's um, risk aversion or risk taking, whether it is responding versus reacting. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of meta. But I think that that's something that we're seeing in the work from home revolution. We're seeing it in um, the dynamic of what, COVID has uh, revealed to people in their friendships and partnerships. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredible time to be privileged to be working as a knowledge worker mm-hmm. and be in gainful employment where you're in a helping prof- profession, whether it's teaching, coaching, um, supporting. Um, and so I'm happy to dive anywhere. But if anything kind of is on your mind, maybe we can have a Vulcan mind melt and start. <laughs> Right there. Well, it all blends together a little bit. I mean, bringing your whole self to work, the whole working revolution. Um, one thing that's very present for me right now is uh, different countries are in different places with COVID and stuff. So, um, and stuff. In the UK, there's a big move towards getting people back to work. Right. Um, which, first of all, the language is interesting because they were working the whole time. Um, right. Right. Um, yes. But there is a lot of non-growth or fixed mindset thinking around lead, um, leaders just pushing people. I mean, we heard in global news that, you know, Goldman Sachs response to their people saying we're burning out completely was we'll just pay more money. <laughs> it's like, um, um, so it's just interesting that, so the respond versus react bit is, yeah. to me, is interesting. I'm a big fan of Viktor Frankl and, yeah. um, the idea that we always have a choice as to how we respond to external stimuli. Yeah. So yeah. respond, responding response starts with saying, what am I aware of? What's happening for me? What am I thinking? What am I feeling? And then responding from a place of choice rather than reacting from a place of, for example, fear or scarcity. So, um, yeah, that's, that's just what occurred to my, to, to my, to my brain for now. Yeah. Oh, no, I really like that. 
I mean, I, at the other opposite spectrum, for whatever reason, email comes to mind, mm-hmm. which email is a very convenient way to respond or react emotionally or unemotionally. Mm-hmm. Women tend to use more explanation marks. Men tend to be more assertive. There's no tone per se. Mm-hmm. So in the world of work, if you look at uh, email meetings, which are for many people just Zoom, endless Zoom, yeah. call it a Zoom playground or maybe a Zoom graveyard of endless um, uh, two-dimensional meetings and um, to-do lists of things to get done. And people are bringing um, different energy to these environments that once were in a workplace and going back to work is actually, you know, back to a physical location, mm-hmm. wherever that may be. And I think people are having so many different aversions or reactions to what that means, whether it's their, uh, what is safe, what is responsible, what is acceptable, where does great collaboration happen? What does, where does great work happen? You know, WordPress as an example, um, had an office in 2015, 2016, got rid of the office and was hiring more than any company during COVID, uh, uh, without ever meeting engineers. So, I mean, obviously, there are certain examples of companies that can navigate this. But I think the individual is very interesting in terms of being in touch with their thoughts, feelings, and emotions, having that awareness that you spoke to, and then saying, like, who, how do I want to be right now in this weird, never-before ex- experiment where I only have – I don't have the vantage point of being in a room with that person that I really would like to sync with, uh, breath. Uh, pupils, body language, and instead we are forced to uh, approximate it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's like the, um, the future of work experiment. Well, the future of work arrived overnight, and we're still in the experimental phase of what is next. And a lot of people are trying to hold on to, I mean, they announced in Vancouver, um, they keep using the word normal, and, and then they know there's no normal, so they're like, uh, some semblance of normality as if we can just sort of get back to a place that is where we were. And um, I find that kind of defeatist. I think it's an opportunity for rebuilding, reconfiguring, deconstructing and starting uh, again, whether it's a career, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's an affirmative action program or a lack of one. There's so many opportunities to innovate right now. So, uh, yeah, kind of riffing on you, I think actually what I'm really interested in is at the individual level, then how it affects the team and cascades to the organization. Hmm. But for a long time, I was going into organizations trying to help transform and help change mindsets and behavior. And I found that extremely challenging to do. And even now, when I do it, I find it hmm. teeth biting or nail biting or uh, like putting my... Nails on a chalkboard, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it can be very challenging, uh, especially with large orgs, right? Uh, you know what just occurred to me? Is it, I went through a hurricane um, 17 years ago next month. Oh, not metaphorically, like literally. No, literally. Hurricane Ivan in Cayman, which was the most devastating natural disaster in recorded history economically. Um, not in terms of lives lost, but in terms of capital damage. Call it... 100,000, 120,000 Canadian per capita capital damage, 95% of structures damaged. So kind of knocked back to the stone age 
And it's interesting you talked about normality or normal and all of this. So it was a massive devastating impact at a human level. Uh, we lost almost all avian life, right? It's an isolated island and all birds were killed because the, the hurricane sat on us for 24 hours. And you walked out and the only color you saw was shades of brown because everything was salt and salt air blasted. No leaves on the trees. So the language society began was, was, wasn't actually normal or normality. They adopted this word normalcy. And you know what? It's never occurred to me and taking it to where you are with the individual level. What do we mean by the word normal? So we've been quite high context here, but yeah, yeah. What, what does it mean to be normal? And a, a quick thought for me, which I mentioned on another podcast, I did a bunch of work around the late Tony Shea's universe in Vegas a number of years ago, about seven or eight years ago. And, you know, it occurred to me at the time, but so I was talking to somebody more recently this year who worked within Zappos and said that, you know, it's a call center. Most people, they just want a paycheck and to come to work. And if you say to them under the, the self-organized systems they had there, choose your boss, choose your salary, choose this, choose that. It's really strange. I was talking to somebody the other day who, um, you know, senior executive got offered a job at Netflix and they said, this, this is great. I'm happy to be offered the job, but how much are you going to pay me? He says, no, you tell us what you, what you justify. So to this day, that person has to be working for them to earn more money than them because they pitched a high number and they look at all this. So that kind of really experimental, if you will, like environment, that is like the Reed Hoffman LinkedIn thing about an entrepreneur is somebody, you know, builds a plane while flying it. Um, but a huge number of people want to uh, maybe all humans at some level want normalcy to include stability and structure. And one of the places they get that is in a paycheck and a nine to five. Um, and they get that from the commuting or they get that from, you know, the 20, the, you know, the optimum time of 22 minutes downtime between work and home. Um, so I just wonder what normalcy, if we can recapture what normalcy means as a, maybe as a human generality and then on an individual level, then you yeah. kind of build the workplace from there, which I think is the direction you're looking at, which is like, what does each individual human want? And then how do you put that into the container of a business that needs to function and be, profit, be profitable? Yeah, very well said. I mean, it's really a dance between structure and fluidity, reliability and predictability versus uncertainty and change and mm. finding, you know, whether it's uh, reinventing organizations or the literature around self-management to sense and respond to what the organism as an organization needs. And that's really no one size fits. What works for Zappos doesn't work for Zapier or. Yeah. But what I love about that is the distinction between work and life, whether it was a commute or a, a move of location, yeah. not from the kitchen to the coffee shop, but like getting on a freeway if you're in LA or getting on the tube if you're in London. Yeah. But even more interesting is I'm a, I am a gooey person to use Alan Watts's term. So I like ambiguity. I like criminal. That's mm -hmm. why I think Roland and I get along is we want to be in the threshold, which is uncomfortable and opaque. And I think from what I'm experiencing with a, a new workforce, like an emerging workforce is a disenchantment, whether it's climate emergency, um, black lives matter, me too movement, 
economic recession 2007 2008 covid or the repercussions and epigenetics of their intergenerational trauma whatever it might be there's a it doesn't really matter i'm never going to retire or have a 401k i might as well retire in real time mm-hmm. and i know this is an elitist probably somewhat not representative of all say people under the age of 30 yet self-management if it, if you go into its like uh benefits it's about trust and you had a great podcast with a fellow who was doing uh a keto or like some uh, dojo stuff who was talking about trust mm-hmm. and so you know zappos had let's say 30 percent of the people leave but the people who did stay were emotionally fit and actually wanting to have 3.7 jobs or to set their own salary or right. not be a brilliant jerk. But the argument there would be, well, Tony Zay was still the dictator. He was still the grand conductor, even though the people felt like they had this incredible autonomy and, and, and freedom. And so I think it's really interesting in terms of uh, opens up in terms of conversation and not to say to be prescriptive, like setting your own salary certainly could work for some people, but yeah. when they tried it at Buffer um, and they have experimented with a lot of other companies, it can create a lot of uh, tension, drama, in, in thing. So I, I, I'm re- wanting to chance self, but myself at that it's not for everybody. And that in terms of your, your phrasing or rephrasing of what is normal, I don't think there is any version of us getting back to normal in terms of office work. I think knowledge workers has been a state of mind and they've been anywhere for so long that COVID just reinforced that Wi-Fi connection and determined just um, committed people. You can get great work done. Uh you know, there's a lot of sort of footnotes there, like, well, what type of work are we talking about and what size of organization? But in the spirit of being able to connect with you uh, quickly and have um, an interaction to then lead to a piece of work, I'm seeing the sales cycle almost speed up in some ways compared to when I was living in London, which in which in, I'm just thinking is like maybe three to six months from the time I would meet someone until work would begin. In Vancouver, it was about 16 coffees before that would happen. Yeah. And now it feels like there's no such thing as like, oh, you're in Vancouver or you're in London. I don't think we can work together. Time zones are too funny. That conversation doesn't happen. Uh, I, I work with people, as probably you do, all over the place. And no one's like, oh, well, yeah, we'll, we'll wait till you come back to, you know, America. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, I, I, well, certainly to, to sidebar on that a little bit. When I, I moved to London four years ago. Four? Um, Forty. Four years ago, yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, and for the previous decade, I've been working all over the place based out of the Cayman Islands, and including Vancouver. And um, I, found, I found the Americas, people would just say, maybe meet once, but often just do it over Zoom or whatever the predecessor was. But when I got to London, it was always like everybody says they're based in London, right? But it's over here. But it's such a big place. A lot of them live an hour or two away and only come in one or two days a week. Even before COVID, these are the people, the decision makers and companies. So the time that they'll get to meet you might be, oh, I'll see you in a couple of months. 
because their time would be crushed up when they, 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 they come in. And so the speed of building relationships, building trust in relationships took a very long time. Um, whereas it's, 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 it's radically accelerated now because for those reasons. So you're, I mean, I agree with your sidebar kind of going back to the, the, um, no, I'm just kind of stuck on this piece about normalcy and, and what it is, because the, this, as you said, the balance between fluidity and structure. And if we do first of all talk about, you know, knowledge workers who don't have to be in the same room as people, I think of hospitals, for example, they're, they're still people with a lot of knowledge, but they have to be in the, in the room and production and factories and stuff are different. Um, but I, I mean, I know a young, young person who graduated university, got a job with an investment bank a year ago. Right. And I found out last week, I'm blown away by this. They haven't seen anybody in their company in a year. They have countless meetings, but they're audio only. And they, they've worked from home the entire time. They've not been into yeah. the office in nearly a year. Um, but yet that seems absolutely fine to them. <laughs> they're perfectly happy with that. It works well. Um, it wouldn't work for me. Yeah. It wouldn't work for me. I need to see people. Um, but you know, the, the, I, I do think about the structure bit. I mean, the, the thing about you're talking about, uh, you know, pension and not retiring, um, and under thirties, um, under thirties weren't the, I, I mean, my, my two older sons are 27, 24. They just bought a condo in the Cayman Islands together. Right. And they managed to do that because they don't have student loans because they got scholarships. And they saved money. But how many 27-year-old and 24-year-olds had to buy together because neither one of them could afford on an income multiple to buy one. But the very idea, you know, in when I was that age, if you worked hard and you, you know, if you'd, if you'd studied and you got a decent job, you could have your own place by the age of 25. You could buy, you know, which in, in, I was, you know, born in the UK and, and home ownership's a big deal over here, um, culturally. But so many people now, that's just never going to happen. I mean, they might be 45 and they're still living at home with their parents or paying rent because, and then, then really disillusioned because rent is more than the mortgage would be. Yes. We live, as the economists say, we live in a rentier economy. So I, I, I'll throw away the normalcy bit because what was considered normal 20 years ago, what was considered normal 10 years ago, it, it, it's all, I mean, the reality is everything is being broken down, as you said, deconstructed and now rebuilt around what does work and life look like. And it is the unfortunate reality is that people who just want to get up in the morning and do the same thing every day and yeah. do what their parents did ain't going to happen. <laughs> well, I would add to that and just maybe re- reaffirm that the American dream was work hard and get ahead, or maybe that was just a, a Western yeah. advanced economy. And that that's, that was that was probably a myth then. Maybe not a myth then. It was true for some people. It's it's certainly like that ship has sailed. So it's like so so then what? Like work hard and uh, graduate with a media communications degree and then go work uh, for Uber uh, as a as a you know like there's so many studies that show that people are not weren't before COVID going into their fields of study. But the other one that's interesting is the biggest. Uh, religion or the most popular religion is non-believers which means it's normal to not have an association right. with a, a faith so our whole idea of normalcy is 
most likely subjective. So what was normal for me, I haven't had, um, I left London in 2014 and I was working with the university, but I haven't had a full-time job in close to 18 years. Hmm. So for me, normalcy has always been design your day, work from anywhere, hmm. figure it out. And a lot of people I know are like that. People who have craved stability and the commute and the third space have been thwarted or thrown against their will into this orbit. And it seems like a sci-fi movie for uh, a Goldman Sachs person to talk for a year on audio calls and not be in a room. For someone like me and you, that's baffling. But for their grandchild or their child, that might be like par for the course, even post-pandemic. Like that's and, and the, the really tough conversation I'm starting to introduce to people because I'd rather they hear it early than late, right, is that there will be no post-pandemic, yeah. right? Yeah. We're living, what we're living in is endemic. Um, but humans, to be positive about it, humans are incredibly adaptable. And if you think about it, we're only about 10 years into the smartphone era. And I remember, yeah. I remember fighting off getting my first cell phone. I won't go back that far, but I remember getting my first Blackberry in 2005, a few months after Hurricane Ivan hit. And I was one of the laggards on that, right? Because I went, that's it. I'm a, I have an addictive personality. That's the end of my work life separation. And sure, it's like, I can get emails on my phone. Now fast forward. Try reaching it to anybody under 25 by email. Yeah. Or they'll say, like, oh, I got your email, but no response. Like, yeah, oh, yeah, I think I saw that email. Like, like, yeah, it's it's like just sending, like, a bottle into the ocean. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I ran a team. Yeah, uh, I really like that. I was going to say I ran a team a few years ago, and there were six of us, and they were a lot younger than me. And we had to have a conversation about what's our communications platform going to be? And yeah, they didn't want to use email at all. <laughs> it's like, that was six years ago. But yeah, if, if we draw a parallel, it's like, I mean, I, the, the one thing is really tough. I gave a lecture, not a lecture, a talk 11 years ago at my kid's school, um, about the environment and, um, and what the business I was leading was trying to do to support it. But I, but I, I you know, first thing I said was, you know, I said, is who remembers a rotary phone? I had to explain to them what it was. I said, the speed of progress is such that every generation in the last, the, like the Western dream, every generation in the last, you know, hundred years has been better off than the generation before it. All right. That was 11 years ago. It's no longer true. Economically, it's no longer true. You know, um, it's not. You know, it's like everything. The latest thing I see is I'm flying for the first time in 18 months tomorrow. And go, geez, my kids missed out on the golden era of being able to use frequent fly miles. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It doesn't exist anymore. But no, yeah. I mean, I can, it can sound really negative, but humans are really adaptable. I think that I like the fact that we, we don't, we only have a few more minutes because we keep these at half an hour. Um, I love the fact you're focusing on the individual. And I guess my thought is if there's any business leaders what listen to these these podcasts, which I know there are, is focus on the individuals first. And then you've got to bring that into a container of what's best for the company. But what's best for the company isn't to give top-down rules. What's best for the company is to understand what motivates your people. 
I'm just talking to someone today yeah. about um, software engineers, right? Mm. And, you know, how can you keep software engineers happy because there's a global shortage of software engineers? And if you need to grow your business, um, it's not just a matter of paying them. They've got to feel all of the non-paid Dan Pink style purpose autonomy mastery. And you've got, and how can you do that? And one of the companies I work with, they introduced the word iconic into their lexicon five, six years ago, right? Because they said, we have to be strategizing on getting customers where we can do iconic projects, right? Because that our people want to do cool stuff. And, you know, that's become a major people is the number one thing in terms of being competitive and growing your business. And it's just become a major, major thing. So effectively what they're doing is if we keep our people happy of the right kind of people we need to do the right kind of work, then we'll be golden. Right. So it, it's interesting, you know, that this you know, to focusing on, on the if the one thing we can do is, is focus on business leaders to go. No, it's not about changing behavior in the business to fit the way you think it should be. Mr. Business leader, Mr. Power from the top. And you're right. Holacracy or reinventing organizations always has the gap that there is a hopefully benevolent leader at the top. Right. And I haven't I don't know how to fix that at the moment. But um but just listening to people and going, what does every single individual want within within what we're looking at? And then, you know, that one company has 23,000 staff and everybody in that company knows they do iconic projects. They do really cool stuff. Right. And they can go home and say, hey, we did this. We did that. And, and yeah. the pictures are up on the website and they go, well, your company did that. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, listen, you got your whole platform is so wonderful because it's saying uh leaders are are people who other people follow and leaders are people who do and don't necessarily do things right and um we're looking for leaders now that are almost leaders that can enable their team to do their best work so they're coming as mr and mrs learn it all complete sort of reverse engineering of a McKinsey management style scientific management. But we're or maybe we're 10, 20 years into it. But if that change is there, then the workplace becomes more human. And that's kind of why I get out of bed for people that go to work and feel more energized by the end of the day. Than they did. Yeah. I remember um, my friend Chip Connolly, who was one of my first guests on the show when he used to run Jwadaviva Hotels, where he would always get the new new highs to come and talk to him for a few minutes. You know, he load of hotels, but he still did this. And he says, how can we help you do the best work of your life? What's his phrase? But explicitly. Yeah, yeah. Like, not, not, like, you know, how can I help? Like, like, I know you're working on this project. I know it's taking a lot of time crunch. How can I help? But even if you look at... um that book plan B where Sheryl Sandberg lost her husband. Yeah. yeah. Her closest friends didn't say, um, what can I do for you? They went to in and out burger or they went to, you know, California pizza kitchen. And they said, do you want pepperoni or uh, quad cheese? And they did, she, they designed out the choices to make them about like, what do you want to eat? I'm coming over. It's that type of leader that we want. It's like full on, like they're being their, full self, vulnerable, open, 
caring, which is kind of against all of the literature of how an MBA kind of leader is trained to be uh, creating assurance. And I know the answer. No. I mean, except for Jeff Bezos, I've read a couple of things we don't have to get into if we don't have time. You know, he's looking at like, it, like quarterly reports for 2024. There are very few people who have the ability to build in, uh, to envision the future and build it. That's very rare to have those types of entrepreneurs. And when we have them, many people are trying to emulate that, which I don't necessarily think those styles of leadership do create uh, a place that you want to go to work every day. I mean, I've known people who work for Tesla. I've known people who work for Google, Facebook, hmm. uh, and many of them go through a revolving door. But that's a whole other conversation. Just to say, yeah. modeling the behavior, your fellow from the hotel chain, and yeah. I know his talks, I'm familiar with his that's the type of leader we need more of. I agree. And I first came across Chip many years before I met him. Um, and following on from that, about seven years ago, I realized I was working with leaders around the world and that their, the world was moving too fast for them to be omnipotent. And um, yeah. another guest I've had, Chris Vanderkyle, came up with the phrase a few years ago. He just said, to try to explain the fourth industrial revolution to people and technology leaps, he went, this is the fastest, we are living in the fastest times we've ever lived in, pause, and the slowest we will ever live in. So this, the idea that, that any one, one person can know the answers on a, on a micro level, forget it, but even on a macro level, no idea. And that's where I start getting in, and we haven't got time for it, but we start getting into things like culture and intent and purpose. So what, yeah. I mean, I'm working with a company right now, which is at the absolute bleeding edge of video production, right? And they, they, got, I wrote a piece a while ago saying invest in culture and leadership early, and they literally saw it online. I think one of them had been reading my blogs off and on for a couple of years. And I'm, I'm now leading a culture project with them. We're going, yeah, you're absolutely right, because no matter what happens to this technology, if you know why you're here, mm. Everything flows from that. So you still have, so that leader then, they just have to have the true north and go, um, gather people around. I'll give you my, my last thought and I'll leave it with you. Um, well, I went to a restaurant, a na- new neighborhood Italian restaurant I went to. And you know when, when people say to you, they are typically ask you a closed end, closed end question because you don't want them to come to your table and you want to go away. And they say, is everything okay? You know, how was your meal? To which you just go good or fine, right? And this waiter came over. He said, during the meal, he said, how are we doing? Mm. And, and the, the inference in his tone is not how are we meaning you. He meant, how are we doing for you? And at the end of the meal, he came back and said, so how did we do? And that goes to the piece you talk about, about being open and learning. And I was blown away. There was something in the whole ambience of the place, which was under new ownership, and this particular waiter and the owner came over later and gave us her intent, her why, her purpose for being. And, it, you know, it was very powerful and had nothing to do with the restaurant business. Um, but I told her this line and she said, nobody's ever told me that. I says, well, it just seemed really remarkable to me, as in worthy of remarking upon. How are we doing during the meal and how did we do? Mm-hmm. It's like, whoa, cool. Yeah, I love that. So. Uh- I'll leave it over to you because we could talk for hours. I'm sorry. Yeah. We're it to yeah. Rough. Let's wrap up. I, I have a couple of points. I think we beautifully just scratched the surface of normalcy and 
letting go of age-old attitudes and operating systems and modes of being and thinking and doing and upgrading them is what creative destruction is about. So you've seen it in every recession, in every history book of Great Depressions. Um, Necessity is the mother of invention, I believe the saying goes. Mm -hmm. Einstein. So that's, I mean, we could riff on that for days. The other thing I thought about was that last point of give to get, which is sort of an Adam Grant thing. You're seeing a lot of people starting with an altruistic motive of, you know, how are you guys doing? How are you hanging in there? You would ask your neighbors. Mm -hmm. You would almost have a a bond now, which for years didn't exist because you were so busy in your nuclear family or, you know, Netflix episode. You're just going to work and coming back. And there was no time to, like, really get to know the neighbors or have the kids. One of my friends uh, built a little door so that the kids could all run from neighbor to neighbor without having to knock on the front door to play those types of mini innovations I think are really beautiful about the, the human spirit of, of starting with a give and not really necessarily expecting anything back. Mm-hmm. So that's also another sort of thing to your story about the waiter. And then the final thing is, you know, I did spend a lot of time starting with the organizations and trying to show up in that way. So what you're doing now with the bleeding edge video production. And I have a lot of uh, admiration for people who are coaches, consultants, advisors can go in and really help um, reimagine the culture or create a space for that to emerge to be great. I'm finding for me that the power of getting one person who is, has influence on others to shift their thinking and shift their paradigm and then move into some sort of modeling of behavior, like not emailing anymore and mm-hmm. maybe using Slack or maybe just using WhatsApp or, you know, telecommunication, other people pick up on that. And that's where you get your 21st century leader. Mm -hmm. Like, why are we not using emails? Because I don't know, but like Tom doesn't. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that's what we need. We need people modeling the behavior. And and Dan Pink has said this several times. We actually don't have a lot of models to Mm -hmm. model behavior. It's it's actually quite rare. Maybe Mm -hmm. there's more now, but certainly five, 10, 20 years ago, it was quite rare to find the uh, Ricardo Semlers in the world. Right. People were really agitators and being like, why does it have to be this way? So I'm really grateful to be on your show and have you do the work you do and the thinking because you share it. I mean, I think that's how we got in touch. So you just share what's inside of you and what you experience without any expectation of like, you know, being put on a pedestal or getting mm-hmm. a medal. So thanks for having me. Uh, wonderful. And if, if I was doing show notes, which I don't, all the <laughs> references you made, there's about 50 really cool references in that in, in half an hour at least. Yeah. Um, my, one of my favorite movies, that and my mentor, and I've mentioned this many times, is a, a wacky French art violence movie called Lucy, um, with Scarlett Johansson. And it's a point, there's this idea where she gets accidentally injected with a drug, and there's this, you know, this myth about you only use 10% of the brain. And all of a sudden, she's using more and more of her brain, and she hacks yeah. into a professor played by, as always, Morgan Freeman. Um, and says, what's this all for? What do I do with this? And he's just completely thrown because he had this hypothesis about it. But all of a sudden, the living proof is on his TV screen. And he goes, well, our highest purpose is to share knowledge. So I just like, yeah, that's what I do. I just like, I talk to interesting people. And the, and I, this is my about my 60th one of these weekly conversations. And I realized a while ago that they've just morphed into 
acts giving people the inside into some cool conversations I have with cool people. So it's, a, it's our first time meeting and talking. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, I will talk to you, as they say, offline. <laughs> And I'll um, arrange a time for us to meet up on- online again, because I doubt I'll get to Vancouver again in a hurry. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, save journeys for tomorrow. And thank you so much for having me on the show. Absolute pleasure, Jonas. Thank you.